Hey, this is Joe Williams, and I'm the lead pastor at New Life Christian Church in Bella Vista, Arkansas. Thanks for tuning in to our weekly podcast. Whether you're a seasoned follower of Christ or just now beginning to explore what being a Christian is all about, our prayer is that this message would strengthen your faith. Now sit back and let's open up the Bible and see what God has to say this week. Good morning. It's great to see all of you today. How many of you have ever heard of Max Lucado? Yeah, a number of us have heard of him. Max Lucado is an author, a uh, really well-known Christian author and, and pastor, and he shares this story um, um, many years ago in a book, and I just, I just love it. It's the story about a little parakeet named Chippy. And Chippy had a very bad day one day. You see, because it all began when Chippy's owner decided to clean out Chippy's birdcage with her shop vac. Okay, so, so one day she's, she's up there and, she, and everything's going well at, at the beginning and she's cleaning out the bottom of the cage with the shop vac and, and then her phone rings. And when she turns around to see where her phone is, um, the only thing that could be heard was this, thoop. And she turned around and quickly realized what had happened. Chippy had been sucked up the vacuum hose. And so she quickly, she shuts it off, she pops the lid off the shop vac, and she reaches down into where all the, the dirt and the, and the debris that had been sucked up from the cage, and she pulls out Chippy to find out Chippy is covered in dirt and dust and, dust and grasping for breath. In a little bit of a panic, she runs to the bathroom, and she turns on the faucet and push to wash Chippy off. And she's standing there, she washes Chippy, gets all the dirt off, and then she realized Chippy is soaking wet, and Chippy is freezing, and, and the little bird is shivering right there in her hands. And so she reaches for the hair dryer. <laughs> Poor Chippy. Never knew what hit him. A friend of the owner came by a few days later and just to see how things were doing and asked, how's, how's Chippy? And she said, well... Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. In fact, Chippy just kind of sits there in his cage and stares off into space. Have you ever felt like Chippy? One minute you're just whistling through life, and then the next you are caught up in a whirlwind of stress and troubles, and you're like, what has happened to me? Because if you have ever felt like Chippy, and you can relate to what Chippy went through, then I believe that this first message in our brand new series that we're starting today is going to give you some much needed biblical perspective and I believe some much needed encouragement today. This new series that I'm talking about is just simply titled Faith That Works. This series is going to be a verse by verse study through the book of James in the Bible. In fact, if you brought your Bible with you today, could you just open it up to the book of James? It's towards the end of the New Testament. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We've got some Bibles sprinkled around in the seat pockets in front of you, in the rows, there's a few of them. And of course, like always, we're gonna have the scriptures on the screens behind me um, so you can follow along. But let me just encourage you to bring your Bibles, especially during this series. Now, I encourage you to bring your Bibles every Sunday. I, I think you should be in the habit of coming to church with your Bible and, and having it ready during this time. But especially during this series, it would be an incredibly valuable um, part of your morning to be able to just have the Bible there on your lap and to be able to follow along. Because we are going to start in James chapter 1, verse 1. And we are going to keep going until we end with James chapter 5, verse 20. Don't worry, not all today. 
We're going to start with the first verse, and we're going to work our way through to about verse 12 today, and then we're going to stop. And then next Sunday, we're going to pick up with verse 12, verse 13, and we're going to keep going. That's this verse-by-verse study through the book of James. And let me tell you, I love preaching verse by verse. Now, we've been in a lot of topical stuff lately, and I've been really looking forward to getting back to a book of the Bible Digging into it verse by verse. Let me tell you, there's a lot of reasons why verse by verse preaching is wonderful. Let me give you two of the reasons why I absolutely love it. The first one is this. When you preach verse by verse through a book of the Bible, you are going to get the, the, the broader context of what's going on in that letter. Now, what I mean by context is this. Have you ever come across a verse in the Bible and you go, hmm, I wonder what that means. Why did he write this? And what you really need to do, that question you're asking, even if you don't know that you're asking is, what's the context? Why did the author write this? What am I supposed to take away from this? And a good practice in Bible study is when you come across a part of Scripture, it's always good to go back to the chapter before it and read up to that section or that verse and then read the chapter after it so that you can get the broader context. Because you know what happens sometimes. We just fixate on one verse or even maybe even half a verse or one word in that verse and we build something around it that may not be accurate at all. And so verse by verse gives us the broader context. We're going to know by the time we get done with this study, why did James write this? And what is the heart of it? And what's going on in his mind? And what's going on in the people's minds who get this Letter. I love verse by verse. Here's, here's the second reason why I love verse by verse pre- preaching. Because when you go verse by verse, you don't miss the hard stuff. You don't miss the hard stuff. In other words, there's some things in James that truthfully I would love to just kind of skip over. Because there's some things that are hard to say. And there's some things that might step on some toes. And let's be honest, I want everyone to like me. When you preach verse by verse, the text brings up things that you cannot ignore. Have you ever sat in church, and hopefully not here, but you've ever sat in church somewhere, and the preacher gets up there and he builds a 35 or 40-minute talk around one verse of the Bible? I hope you notice that when I preach, I use lots of scripture. I bring in lots of text because I want you to have context. I want you to know the full meaning of it and to make sure that we're truly understanding what's being said and that we don't skip the hard stuff. So there's some things in James that's going to be a little bit hard but it's in the Word of God. And if we're going to preach the whole counsel of God, we don't skip the hard parts. Amen. All right, why the book of James? Well, there's 39 books in the Old Testament. There's 27 books in the New Testament. Why James? Why right now? Let me tell you why. We just finished a series uh, last month called Jump. We've been talking a lot about faith and what it looks like here as a church family to, to just uh, trust God with everything and to go for it and, and to jump and to have this mentality as a church and as a Christ follower that says, you know, if God says go, we're going to go. If God says to obey, we're going to obey. If, you know, just have this mentality of faith in action because that's what faith is. Faith is action. Faith is not doing nothing. Faith is doing something. So we've been talking a lot about that and kind of the, 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 the sentence, if you will, or the description that we've been talking about with faith is like this. Trusting God and having faith, it's a lot like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute and trusting God for the landing. That's faith. So we've been talking about that a lot as a family. And I just want you to know that I've been so encouraged by talking to some of you 
who have told me about your stories of jumping, past, present, and what you think God might be doing. In fact, I've had so many conversations in the last month and a half that, that started out like this. Hey, you know what I think my jump is? I think my jump is dot, dot, dot. I, I've been so, so encouraged. We're studying the book of James because I just don't think as a church we're supposed to stop talking about jumping yet. And that's, that's why we're tackling James. There's more for us to learn about putting our faith into action every day, growing up into the men and women that God has called us to be and to, to achieve this thing that God says, this is what I want for your life, and we're not there yet. We're growing towards it in maturity. We, we've got a lot to learn still about faith, and I just don't sense that God's ready for us to stop talking about jumping just yet. And what the book of James does, it is literally a description a verse-by-verse -verse description of what it looks like to trust God, to jump, have faith every single day in all these different kinds of situations that we might encounter in a normal day. The book of James is perhaps one of the most practical books that you're going to read in all of the Bible. And what I mean by practical, I mean this. I mean you can pick it up and you can read some of it and you can go, that applies to me. That speaks right into my life. It bridges the time, the distance of time, all these hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's just as relevant to my life today as it was to the people that was written to all those years ago. It's so practical. So no matter where you are at today in your walk with God, whether you have been a Christian for the majority of your life or whether you are here today and you're scratching your head going, I'm not even sure if I believe all this stuff, or you're somewhere in between those two. The book of James is for you. And I believe that God is going to use the inspired words that he gave to James to show you something very significant about him, our Heavenly Father, and what being a follower of Jesus is all about. Whether you've been a Christian for lots of years, or you're not sure you want to jump on board, He's going to show you something. The book of James has that kind of practicality to it. So let's just jump in and let's get going. You got verse 1 open on your lap. James chapter 1, verse 1. It starts out like this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations Greetings. This is not a, a uh, untypical greeting. You, you read the rest of the New Testament letters, you're going to read a lot of, of those kind of things. It's like a, there's a greeting. When they write letters, like, hey, here's who's writing it, and, and, and it's just a typical greeting. Um, right here, James is the one who identifies himself, or the author identifies himself as James. So the natural question is, which James is it? Because there's more than one James in the Bible. In fact, just in the Gospels, we read about four different James there. And so we, who, which James is this? Who's the most likely candidate? Or is it none of those James? Well, I won't bore you with all the details. You can go and research it yourself. But I can tell you all fingers point to, or the most likely candidate for this James, is James, none other than James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. 
Now, in case you're wondering, yes, the answer is Jesus did have other brothers and sisters. The Bible tells us that Mary and Joseph went on to have other brothers and sisters. He had siblings. We read about them from time to time in the Bible, but they would be his half-brothers and half-sisters. You know why that is, right? Because Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. And so Joseph was Jesus' earthly father. He was not his biological father. Now Mary and Joseph would go on to have many other children. And so Jesus has half-brothers and half-sisters. And James is one of those half-brothers. Now, there's a lot of reasons why we believe that James is the one that wrote this letter. But I can tell you that James, the half-brother of Jesus, he became very prominent in the church. He became a tremendous leader in the church. We read about him in Acts chapter 15 where he helped lead the church through a very um, troubled season where they weren't sure what needed to happen. And James stood up to help lead the church through that. He was basically the leader of the church in Jerusalem. It was the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians who would refer to James as a pillar of the church. This is Jesus' half-brother. So when he says James, a servant of God and Lord Jesus Christ, I am fascinated by his description of himself. Now, this is why I'm fascinated by the way that he describes himself at the beginning of this letter. Because James is living in a time with who your family is means something very significant. I mean, this is all about so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and you're so-and-so, you're the son of the what? And, and all of these things make a significant difference when somebody introduces himself. It says something about them. And you know what I think James could have said? James could have said, greetings, I'm James, the half-brother of the Messiah, the half-brother of God's own son who died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins of the whole world, who raised a life three days later and then ascended into heaven with the world watching me, James, the half-brother of that guy. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. It's James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that right there, you know, sometimes you just gloss over the first words of a letter, and that's not important. But let me tell you, this is very important. Because you're going to find out later, as he writes the rest of his later just what kind of spirit and what kind of mind that James has. And by him not claiming that hereditary um, in his title and just saying, I'm a servant of the Lord, it's connecting that humility and faith go together. You're going to see that in this letter. Humility and faith, they work together. And so we have a very humble man who says, servant of God and Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something. When was the last time your brother ever referred to you as a servant? Now think about that. I've got a brother. His name is Tim. We're 18 months apart in age. He got all the hair. I got all the looks. <laughs> Competitive as can be. I've never called him. I've never referred to myself as his servant. But the brother of Jesus refers to himself as the servant of Jesus. That tells us something about James. 
So James addresses his letter to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now this is an interesting um, description of who this letter is going to because by saying the 12 tribes, he, that's a direct reference to the children of God, the Israelites, also known as the Jews in the Bible. So he's talking about the children of God. But he's also, at least 19 times in the book of James, he refers to this same group as his brothers and sisters. Now, brothers and sisters is obviously there's a physical reference, but James uses it more as a spiritual reference. So he's saying, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. So James is writing this letter primarily to Jews who have become Christians. So now they're his brothers and sisters in Christ. Their identity is in Jesus Christ. That's how they identify themselves. And they are suffering great persecution because they're scattered out among. So in Acts chapter 8, we read about great persecution breaking out among the Christians. And many of the Christians fled Jerusalem. And so there's, a, there's a, obviously a very painful part of that persecution. But the, the upside of that persecution is that when all these Christians fled out of Jerusalem because of the persecution, they took the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And so everywhere they went, they began to tell others about Jesus. And the good news began to spread, and the church began to grow. And so he's writing to those Christians, those brothers and sisters in Christ, primarily those who have a Jewish descent, who gave their life to Christ, who have been scattered because of persecution, and they are experiencing some significant trials in their lives. So it doesn't, it, you know, we don't have to wonder too hard when you know about who James is writing to, why he starts his letter the way he does. Look at verse 2. So he's writing to these Christians. They're being persecuted. They've been scattered. And then he says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Some of you in here today are reading those words for the very first time in your lives. And maybe the temptation for those of you that have read this, read this for the very first time and you've never read the book of James, you don't know where he's going. There's probably a part of you that's going, are you sure about that? That can't be right. That, that can't be right because consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. That, that's counterintuitive. I, 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 that's not my story. So it was, what is James saying? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Does, is he saying or is he insinuating that I'm supposed to be happy when it feels like my world is falling apart? Is that what he's saying? Last week, I, I took my car to the shop to have some work done on it. And um, when I dropped off the car, I was wearing my, um, my New Life logo t-shirt thingy, which I got a closet full of them. If you're not wearing your New Life gear, you need to, I'm saying. If you don't have New Life gear, orders will be coming soon. But I walked into the shop, and I had my New Life shirt on, and, and I had met this guy before, the guy that owned the shop, and he remembered me, and he said, hey, you go to New Life, right? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, you're the pastor there, right? I'm like, yeah, that's right. And he says, do you have a minute to talk to me? Everybody been that kind of like, you know, that, that's kind of desperation, to be honest with you. He goes, do you have a minute to talk to me? I'm like, yeah, of course I do. And so we kind of went back into his shop, and, and, and he goes, I, I am going through the roughest season of my life. 
and he's a Christian. He, he told me about kind of his, his background, and he's a believer, but he said, admittedly, I have not, I've not been in church in months. I, I have not, right now, I would not say I'm living the way the Lord wants me to live, and, and he talked about maybe the word is backsliding and, you know, words that many of us can relate with, right? And he said, I'm just, I'm just experiencing this, this, this really, really, really rough season. And he told me a couple months ago his dad died. And he said, I just, nothing's been well since then. And I've not been well. And just really struggling through that. So we, we talked about that a little bit. And then he said, after my dad's funeral, he said, I was given my dad's Bible. And he says, I took the Bible and I opened it and I was looking through it. And I've looked through every page because I was just looking to anything that my dad had written. I mean, this is a man that's, you guys know what this is like, who's hurting over the loss of a parent and just clinging to anything that he can hold on to. You know what that's like, right? And there's this one verse out of the entire Bible that his dad at some point in his life had underlined. And he said, he said, I don't know what this underlined verse means. And will you explain it to me? So I took it from, it was in the Old Testament, and, it, and, and I, I began to read and get the context so I understood what was going on here, and kind of figured it out fairly, fairly quickly and explained it to him, and, and, um, and, at, and at the heart of the verse that was underlined, it was talking about that if you stay committed to God, and if you keep God in your focus, it's going to be all right. And so we, we kind of started from there. And since I'd already been studying like a madman, getting ready for this series out of the book of James, James is really fresh. And so I'm like, hey, you know what? Let me, let me tell you what it says in James chapter 1, verse 2. It says, consider it pure joy. This is what I'm telling him one-on-one -on -one in his shop. The Bible says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because, you know, the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its works and be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And, and as we talked about what that verse means do you think at any time in that conversation I said to him, you know what, you need to be really happy about this crummy life you're having right now? Did I ever say that? Absolutely not. Did I ever say, this is such a great thing? You ought to be so happy about it. In fact, you know what? You ought to go out there in, in the shop where the cars are, find an open spot, and you ought to do a couple cartwheels and backflips. That's how happy you should be about how miserable you're feeling. No, I didn't say that at all. Because that's not what James is saying. It's not what this verse means, not in the least. It doesn't mean that we are somehow supposed to enjoy ex uh, these trials that come to life. It doesn't mean that we put on this phony smile and pretend like everything's great when it's not. You've seen some of those smiles today already. How's it going? Great. But deep down inside, no, it's not great. It doesn't mean that at all. As we talked about this verse, I'm convinced that only Christians, only Christians are capable of truly understanding what James is talking about in this verse. This pure joy that James is writing about is more about having this overall understanding that God is bigger than your hardships. And there is some joy in knowing that. And that God has a significant purpose for our lives when we're experiencing difficult things, and there's some joy in knowing that as well. There's joy in knowing some things about God, that he is bigger than the situation, and he's going to use it for his good, and that's the only reason we could ever have joy in the face of trials. Do you know that today? Well, let me ask a different question, because you can know it. Do you believe that today? 
Do you believe that? See, that God is bigger than your current hardship and that he has a significant plan for your life through it. He's got something specific for you. The last thing I said to this guy as I was leaving his shop that day is the same thing that I believe many of you need to hear today. It's the same thing that I have to remind myself often about, and it's this. God uses tough seasons and trials to shape you, not to harm you. God uses tough things, tough situations, tough seasons, tough circumstances, not for harming you, but to shape you. And that is why James says that when we go through these things, consider it pure joy. Joy in knowing God's not done with you, nor has he forgotten you. You know, I think that's, that's the trick of the devil, isn't it? That he wants you to think some things that just aren't true, especially when everything seems really awful. Have you ever had this thought? Well, God must not care about me anymore. Have you ever allowed your mind to wander and say, I don't even think God notices that I'm on this earth. You ever, you ever sit and you've been in the hospital for a while, alone, and it's quiet, you don't feel good? You wonder, God, do you know I'm even here on the sixth floor of this hospital going through what I'm going through? You ever sit at home alone in the quietness of it all and going, do you know I'm here, God? What am I doing here? You ever wonder, I don't think God loves me anymore. I must have screwed up way too bad. That's the only reason why I could be experiencing this. Listen, nothing, James confirms it, nothing could be further from the truth. He's shaping you. He's growing you. And if you allow yourself to be shaped by God as he sees fit through difficult, difficult circumstances, then I'll tell you what that's going to lead to. James says it. It's going to lead to a maturity you don't know right now. It's going to lead to a completeness that you are not aware you're incomplete on. That's what these things leads to. And James isn't the only one to write about difficult things in such ways. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5, he says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. And that makes no sense to those who don't believe. We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's something about painful things that produces something that it makes you wonder, could I achieve without pain? Peter writes about this as well. In Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, he says, In all of this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Only Christians can understand this. These have come so that 
the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I, I don't know what kind of hardships that you're experiencing right now or have just come out of or maybe are on the front end getting ready to go into. I don't know what you're going through, but I do understand the emotions that you might be experiencing with a season of trial like, like that. But one thing I just feel like so strongly that this text screams at us is that God uses tough things, tough trials, not to harm you, but to shape you. Now, as I read through these three passages of Scripture, one by James, one by Paul, and one by Peter, there's several words that just jump off the page and connect as it relates to trials. So here's what's connected to trials. Perseverance, maturity, and completeness or wholeness. And think about these words that are connected with these painful experiences. Perseverance, maturity, and complete. Here's some other ones. Genuineness, praise, and glory, and honor, and character, and hope, and Love. These are all the qualities that God has wanted to shape you to have more of in your life. And these are great things. These are wonderful things. These are things that help us get through the world and to, to live out our faith till the day we die. And this is the stuff that God wants you to grow in. This is all wrapped up in that word maturity. Look what else he says. Jump to verse 5. He says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. That's one of those verses I'd like to just skip over. Because who wants to talk about double-minded, wavering people? But James says, right after trials and persecution, he's saying this, you guys need to pray more. That's his, that's his counsel to the Christians scattered out around the world suffering these great persecutions. You need to pray more. You need to pray more. And he says, pray for wisdom. Now, wouldn't it make more sense if James said, you need to pray for strength, or you need to pray for more grace or even deliverance. Now, that would make more sense, right? I've been going through a difficult thing. God, help me. Get me out of this. Or am I the only one that's ever prayed that prayer? We've all prayed those prayers. Have you ever thought that maybe we are praying the wrong thing during difficult situations? Maybe we're on our, on our knees saying, God, get me out of this situation. God, deliver me from this. God, I, I, I need you to, to fix that. I need you to get rid of that situation. And we pray that way out of desperation when life gets tough. But James seems to indicate that maybe that's not how we should pray at all. In fact, that's not the advice he gives to the Christians in his letter. He says, pray for wisdom. And it's not a mistake or an accident that he said it right after he's talking about trials and hard things. Pray for wisdom. Why would he say that? I'll tell you why. And I think maybe we instinctively know this, especially if we're going through something difficult right now. That, that during difficult days, we need wisdom more than anything else. And I would argue more than deliverance. We need wisdom so that we'll not waste the opportunities that God is giving us to mature. 
wisdom helps us understand how to use these hard, difficult circumstances for our good and for God's glory. Did you hear that? James said, you need to pray for wisdom so that you don't waste this opportunity. God's doing something with you. Don't squander it. Don't squander it. Pray for wisdom so that you can interpret and understand that this hard, difficult circumstance is for your good and it is for God's glory. And I'll tell you, if we can make that jump to pray for wisdom, you are well on your way to uh, getting the most out of that difficult moment. James not only tells them what to ask for, but he, he tells them how to ask for it. He says, when you ask for it, ask for it in faith. Believe. When you ask for wisdom, believe and don't doubt. Believe and don't doubt. See, this, 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 what James is telling, it takes me back to a verse that we looked at um, several weeks ago during our jump series. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 14 when uh, the disciples were out in the boat and the storm had come up and they were out there without Jesus? And then here comes Jesus walking on the water to them. And Peter sees Jesus coming and he says, hey, if that's you, Lord, tell me to come out there to you. And Jesus says, come. And do you remember that Peter threw his legs over the boat and he steps out on the water and he starts to walk? And then there's this moment where Peter, we, we, we kind of read into what's going on a little bit. We can assume that Peter began to look around. They're in a storm, a literal storm out on the sea. And I would imagine there's waves that are just crashing. And maybe if you think about the moment, Peter's going up and down with the waves as he's walking. And he's trying to get to Jesus, and all of a sudden, the, the Bible says he takes his eyes off the Lord, and we connect that saying he takes his focus, and he puts it on the storm and not on the Lord. He puts his focus on the difficult thing and not on the Lord, and he begins to sink. And Jesus reaches out and grabs him, he pulls him up, and we always focus on the first part of what Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. And then he says this, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And what we have right here is we have this biblical snapshot of what I think is a parallel to what James is saying. You know, when we go through difficult things, isn't it our human nature, our lack of faith, or whatever you want to call it, to focus on the trial and not on the Lord? And so James is saying, when you're in a trial, when you're in a difficult thing, whatever it may be, understand that this is going somewhere. It's not just spinning. This, this whole thing is going somewhere. Pray for wisdom. And when you pray for that wisdom, don't doubt. He's saying, James saying, you guys keep your eyes focused squarely on the Lord. He's doing something. Don't take your eyes. Don't fixate it. Focus on Jesus. I think that's the heart of what James is trying to communicate. Jump down to verse 12. He says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. I read that, and I'm going, man, he sounds an awful lot like his half-brother, Jesus, doesn't he? Jesus built a whole sermon on what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed. And so James, I think, is taking a play right out of his brother's playbook. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, the, the person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. I tell you, verse 12 is a great encouragement to me 
because it promises me a crown, or we might just say it's another word for an award. This is going somewhere. This is going to lead to something. And when we have stood the test of time, of, a test of this trial, we, we know ultimately the ultimate award is heaven. Some trials are long, some trials are short. Ultimately, if you're in a long one, you know heaven fixes everything. But there's an award that comes to those who persevere under such things. Perseverance is an award. Maturity is an award. Completeness, not lacking anything, is an award. It's given to those who persevere under trial. It's given to those who sought wisdom and kept their eyes on the Lord. It's given to those. It's, it's part of that shaping process. There's more that could be said about that, but let me just share with you two things. Because I know in our church family, there's some trials. There's some significant things. And I just want to give you these two things from our text today that don't ever forget. The first one is this. Nothing escapes God's notice. I think that's so important to remember when we are experiencing such difficult things. Nothing escapes God's notice. He sees all. He knows everything. And when we ask the question, God, do you see me? Of course he sees you. Sometimes we just need that little reminder that says, no, God's right there with you. He hasn't, nothing has escaped his notice. No matter where you go, what you do, he sees it all. And you can have confidence, don't doubt, that God knows what you're going. Because nothing escapes his notice. Here's the second thing. God is intentional. God is intentional. Sometimes I think it's a temptation to think that, 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 that there's so much randomness in life. And why does that make it? God's intentional. And God, if anything you see out of this text here today, God has a plan for the things that happen in our lives. He's going to use them. There, there's a verse that has meant a whole lot to me my entire life. I, I've seen this verse play out over and over. It's a promise more than anything else. Romans 8, 28, some of you know it well. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God can take these painful things and, and, and work them to something that he desires for your life. I've seen that. I know you've seen it too. God's intentional. When I think about God being intentional, my mind immediately takes me to a guy named Joseph in the Old Testament. And we won't read his story. His story takes like 20-something chapters. But the book of Genesis, there's a guy named Joseph, young guy. He had a bunch of brothers. The brothers hated him because they thought his father favored him. And so they sold him off into slavery. And if you know the story well, Joseph gets sold off into slavery. He goes to Egypt where he's a slave. And then he gets accused of some things. And he goes off into prison. No, no, there was a number of years there where Joseph's life was pretty miserable. And then because God works everything to his good, God has a plan. God's very intentional. God doesn't miss a detail at all. All of a sudden, Joseph finds himself from, from slave to prisoner to the second highest leader in all of Egypt. And as the story goes, there's a great famine in the land. Joseph saves his family from the famine, and he moves in there, and, and, and all is forgiven. But as time goes by, Joseph is, Joseph's brothers begin to think that maybe, maybe Joseph is going to get his revenge on them. And he begins to worry them. And you come to the end of the story in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where you've got brother, his brothers that are terrified of how powerful their brother has become, that he's going to get them. And Joseph says something to them that I believe God wants you to hear today. Joseph looked out at his brothers with so much forgiveness in his heart, 
understanding this idea that God uses tough things to create great things out of you. And he says, you know what, my brothers? You intended to harm me. Your intentions were terrible. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Let me tell you, friends. God uses tough times not to harm you, but to shape you. Are you open to his shaping? Will you be open to letting God shape your life? Not being angry, not being bitter, not questioning God, but being somebody who says, I'm in a pretty big storm. My eyes are focused on Jesus, not the waves, on Jesus. I won't doubt. God, give me wisdom to get the most out of what's going on. I tell you, that kind of attitude, God will make out of you something that you never dreamed. You just might jump one day in a way that you had never been prepared to jump without that difficult season. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I just, I just give you all thanks today. And Lord, the Bible says to thank you and give thanks in all circumstances. And if we take that to be literal, which it is, Lord, all means even the very difficult things. So Lord, we just as a church family together acknowledge in gratitude, gratefulness to you for even difficult things. And Lord, we pray for your wisdom. We need your wisdom to fill our lives so that we can see challenges and trials and difficult seasons as opportunities for you to shape us into the kind of people you want us to be, mature, men and women of perseverance and completeness. So Lord, you can refine us so that we could be ready to jump and to do and prepared to be what you want us to be. Lord, I just pray you, you help us take the words that you inspired James to write to heart. That, Lord, we would not quickly dismiss what you're trying to teach us today. But, Lord, that we can walk out of here confident. Lord, we walk in here hurting, we leave hurting, but at least now we're confident that you're doing something. That you haven't forgotten us, that you love us, and you're intending to, to shape us, not harm us. Lord, help us to remember that as we leave here today. Lord, help us to remember it tomorrow when things get difficult. Help us remember it next week and this entire month and this whole year and our whole lives, Lord. That you have our best interest in mind. Lord, I just want to say thank you for them. Lord, I pray for anybody in this room today who has allowed difficulties to hinder their walk with you. Lord, I pray for anybody who's allowed a confusing situation to keep them from following you with all their heart. Lord, I would just pray that through the reading of your word, the power of your holy scriptures, Lord, you'll break through those walls and whisper, come follow me. I got a better way. I love you. Lord, I pray for that's going on. I pray for that. Lord, 